So last week we uh, we looked at he descended into hell or Hades. How many of y'all said that this morning? How many of y'all substituted Hades for hell? Anybody? Not yet. All right. You want the elders to officially mandate that, right? Um, so uh, a number of you have asked. We we had a, we had recording issue last week, and so. Um, I don't even think I left the church premises last week, and Marion said, send me your sermon notes. I want to turn that into a booklet. So that's what he did. Um, he took my sermon notes, and I guess I'm, does this make me a published author now? So I think maybe I'm published now. Um, I can put that in my, my, uh, my resume or whatever. But uh, So my sermon is in written form, and there's a I think he made a hundred copies. I'm like, I can't imagine there are a hundred people that want to read this again. But there you go. It's in the Narthex, and if you're interested in looking at it. Um, and thankfully, he footnoted it for me so that uh, all the people that I stole their material, they're listed in there. You know the difference between scholarship and, um, and uh, plagiarism, right? Do you all know the difference between that? So plagiarism is when you steal from one person. Scholarship is when you steal from many people. Okay, that's how you. That's how you. Get. All right. So let's. Uh, this morning we are at the thrilling topic of the ascension, and um, so let's just let, let me kind of give you that picture of what we're doing. Okay, to make sure we're all on the same page. So we're taking the Apostles' Creed, which is this historic creed that comes to us from about 390 A.D. It goes back further than that, but that's about really when you have that really first solid working version of the Apostles' Creed. And so that creed, is it didn't come from the apostles themselves, but the teaching was there. And so the teaching was all, all there. Uh, the creed was, was being formulated for a couple hundred years and, um, and the version that we use comes to us roughly from about 390. So if you figure for the last 1,600 years, that's a long time by anybody's uh, estimation, 1,600 years or so, the Apostles' Creed has been a, a statement, a creedal statement that has been used within the church, both the Eastern and the Western church, both the Catholic church and Protestant church, in order to confess our common faith, okay? And so that we use the Apostles' Creed for a number of reasons. It, it connects us to history. It connects us to the early apostolic teaching. So it has this effect of not letting us you know, drift away and, and kind of be out doing our own thing, but it, it roots us, okay? And being rooted is really helpful. It's really important because, you know, if you're not rooted and grounded, the next thing you know, you'll just be doing kind of this and that and the other. And so the creed helps to um, keep us focused, as it were, on the main things. And so we're using the creed. Not We're not preaching the creed necessarily, but we're looking at the creed to see, okay, what did those early apostles think was kind of the the root, core, ground, grounding foundation uh, of our faith. What, what did they see that uh, was, was really, really
really critical important because that's about all that made it into the Apostles' Creed. It's very trim. It's very slim. There, there are no wasted words in, in the Creed. And so we're using that, but then we're going back to the Word. Okay, so what part of the Creed for us, uh, what, what, where, is the, where, where do we see that in the Word? Okay, and so this morning we've already been to Ephesians chapter 1, and we've been in Acts chapter 1. Now, the end of the, the gospel accounts, we get the account of the ascension. So the early church made a big deal about Ascension Sunday. How many of y'all have grown up in some sort of a, a kind of a high you know, liturgical service? Any of you? So the Ascension Sunday was celebrated. Historically, we made a big deal out of Ascension Sunday, but, but as the years have worn on, all right, in light of Christmas and Easter, the Ascension has kind of taken a back seat. It, it, it's, it's not as big a deal, but it is a really big deal, okay? And, uh, and so I'm going to make the case for you this morning that the Ascension is actually critical to your faith today, all right? So let's jump in. Let's look at it. Let's just talk about a little bit of the detail. First, kind of a, a perspective from the disciples, Mark chapter 16, verse 19. Here at the beginning, I'm going to throw in a lot of verses. I'm not going to take time to wait for you to turn in your Bibles. You, you can write them down, but I'm just going to read it for you. Mark 16:19. After the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Okay, so this is a big deal. If you if you turn over in Acts, my glasses. If you turn over in Acts chapter 2, um, you'll see Peter's giving his speech. He's, he's kind of laying out the basics of who Jesus is and what, Je- what happened. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God he has received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and pour, poured him out. This right hand of the Father, this seat of prominence, the place of prominence is very important. Jesus goes there. He sits. Okay? That sitting is important because what it communicates, what do you do? You go out, you mow the yard, you, you weed eat, you put down fertilizer, and then you get a cold one from the fridge and you go and you what? You sit. Why? Because your work is finished. Okay? And so, Jesus at this point, that, that, that idea of Jesus going to God the Father, sitting at His right hand, communicates to us that He has finished a portion of His work. We call this Jesus' session. He sits in session. So, when the elders meet, they are sitting in session. I, I, I don't know how those are all com- tied together completely, but that's why we call it the session. Okay? But this is Jesus' session. His role at this point changes somewhat. We'll, we'll talk about that. But you're going to hear this over... If you look at the passages that talk about the ascension of Jesus... 
automatically included in that is Jesus at the right hand of the Father sitting. Okay, Luke chapter 24, 51, from the perspective of the disciples, while he was with them, he left them and he was taken up into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, we looked at it. And when he had spoken these things, while they saw him, he was taken up, up and a cloud received him out of their sight. What about a, what about a different perspective? What about the perspective from heaven? There are several verses that give us that perspective as well. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Listen to the way Daniel describes it. In my vision at night, I looked, and before me there was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, So Daniel's vision is he's, he's up here looking down. He sees Jesus one like the Son of Man, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority. That's going to be another theme that runs through this ascension and Jesus sitting at the right hand. Everything is now placed under Jesus' feet. He's what? Lord of Lords and he's King of Kings. Okay? And everything, he has completed his work, and now everything is going to be placed under, it says, under his feet. It's all his. His sovereign control over, he is Lord of everything. That's the picture. He was given, verse 14, authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all the nations and peoples of every language, worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Beautiful picture from, from Daniel. It's a heavenly perspective, right? It's what is this now, this ascension, is the Son of Man comes on clouds and then is led to the Ancient of Days. What a an amazing panorama of what is going on in, in heaven as Jesus finishes his work on earth and he goes to the Father and he takes dominion and control over a kingdom that will never fade away. Beautiful picture. Mark sixteen nineteen. we, we already looked at that. Ephesians 1, we, we've looked at this one, but listen to the way it's described, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly. So think about that. That's a God perspective that, that Paul is giving us in Ephesians chapter 1. That is a perspective of what it is that God is doing as he raises Jesus from the dead and brings him uh, to himself. Then he says, verse 21 far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Allah, last week, do you remember? Okay. So one of the things we said about Jesus' descent into Hades is that he has, he's displaying the keys 
that he owns. He, he has the power over Hades. He has the power, now Paul says, over the world and the world which is to come. Verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. That's that heavenly perspective. What did God do? God raised him from the dead. He brought him to heaven. He placed everything under his control. He has dominion over all things. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. That's kind of the basics. Now the question that we need to start jumping into is, and why does it matter? Okay? What really matters, some people are going to say, what really matters is Jesus died on the cross for my sin. That really matters. Okay? But the amazing thing is, there's more. Right? There's much more to who Jesus is and what Jesus is currently doing than just the fact that he paid the penalty for your sin. So let's look at why it matters. And I'm going to give you, since the number of perfection is seven, we're going to look at seven things that Jesus did, okay? Seven reasons, while it was necessary for Jesus to ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father. Here's the first one. It was necessary for him to go to the Father because he had finished his work on earth. He was done with what he needed to accomplish on earth. And what did he need to accomplish on earth? Really important. Jesus needed to accomplish on earth first. He needed to be tempted in every way, just as you and I are, yet without sin. Okay, So to be the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus had to be tempted in every way possible. But he couldn't sin. And so he went through tribulation. And so to see kind of a a picture of that, what you see is when Jesus began his ministry, what did he do? He went out into the wilderness. And so Jesus experienced this wilderness wandering. How many days did he go? Anybody? Forty. Why did he go for 40 days? Because that was going to mirror what? How long was Israel in the wilderness? Forty years, okay? So there's a mirror picture going on. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. That was their time of trial and tempting. And, and, and that, that was their difficult period. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. And he's tempted. And, and the devil comes at him. We just have three of those. But it was constant. Okay, it was so intense that at the end of it, the angels had to come and minister to Jesus because he was completely wiped out. That's how that's how difficult that 40 day period was. But during that period, we get a snapshot, right, of the devil coming to him saying, look, why? Why are we doing this the hard way? Okay, just just do this, just do that, just do the other, and I'll give you all of this. I'll give you this kingdom, and you don't have to you don't have to go through that hard stuff. And each time Jesus provided an answer. Okay? So Jesus had a work. He had work that he had to do on this earth. A big part of that was he had to be obedient to the law's demands. The law 
requires obedience. Salvation. Your salvation is accomplished by works. I know we tell you every, every week, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. I know I tell you that all the time, and it is, but it is by works. Somehow, the law's demands have to be met in your life. And the reality is Jesus met those demands when he lived on this earth. And his work is credited to your account. Okay? So your account was zero. Now it's a hundred. And, it, and, and it's, it's full. And the reason it's full is because when you trusted in Jesus, his work went into your account. And that's how, you're, that's how you meet the law's demands. And so that's part of the work that Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells it, put, puts it to us this way. <coughs> the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins... Okay, so there's a second thing that Jesus had to do is he had to pay the penalty for your sin. He purified. Okay, uh, he made purification for your sins. After he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews chapter 10, 11 and 12 puts it this way. Day after day, every priest stands. Why does he stand? Because he's working, and he performs his religious duties again and again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God because it was finished, because he had done his work. So Jesus ascended into heaven because... He finished the work that God gave him to do on this earth. Second, he ascended into heaven so that he might continue his priestly work. He ascended into heaven to continue his priestly work. His earthly work as our mediator was finished. But John tells us in in 1 John chapter 2 that Jesus moved from this this mediator role to an advocate role. Okay, and so he goes first uh, John chapter two, verse one, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus, the righteous one. We also talk about this in, in a sense that Jesus is making intercession for us um, and, uh, and that comes from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 5. He always lives to intercede for them. So, what is, here's the picture. The picture is, he is your advocate, okay? And so, you know, imagine a courtroom setting. You're over there, you're in the defendant's bench, and you're, and the, and, right, the accuser is saying, well, here's, here's what he did today. And Jesus says, Your Honor, I, I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. He, he is your advocate. He, he goes to, He fights for you. You belong to Him. You are 
in Him. You're His. And so He is advocating for you, okay, in the courtroom of God's justice. He's pleading your case to the Father. He owns you. He paid for you. He paid for all of your sin. And so that's an active, ongoing role that Jesus has. If So, my dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. And then it says, but if anybody does sin, the, the, the better way to translate that is, but when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Do you all realize this? Listen. Part of, uh, of, of what Jesus did in his work on the cross was, so when we say, R.C. Sproul used to say it this way. He would say, he would say, um, he would ask the question, what are you saved from? You can answer it in your, maybe think about it. What are you, because we talk about we're saved. What are you saved from? A lot of people would say, well, I'm saved from the devil. I'm saved from hell. Okay? That's not what the Bible necessarily teaches. It, it, it gets there, but the reality is you are saved from the wrath of God. So when Jesus died, he was a propitiatory sacrifice. That's the big feel. i got to give one of those every week, right? I, I paid all that money for that seminary degree. Propitiation. He, he was a propitiation for our sin. And what that means is he turned away, okay? He turned away the wrath of God, which was directed towards you for your sin. Okay, so you were a sin- we we're sinners. God's wrath rested on us. Jesus redirects that wrath to Himself. He takes it, so He is a propitiatory sacrifice for us. Okay, so that is part of that that work. That's part of that work of being an advocate. He turns away the wrath of God from us. He continues that work in heaven. The third one is quickly, easily. John tells us, right? His father's house. Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms. Um, if it were not so, I would have told, I would have told you that. But I, have, I am going there to prepare a place for you. We hold on to that. So why did Jesus need to ascend into heaven? Because he's in the preparatory phase for you and I. He has gone and is making a way for us. Fourth, he ascended into heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit to be our comforter. John seven thirty nine. By this, uh, he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay? So Jesus goes into heaven, and when he does, and this is repeated multiple times, it's given to us in Acts, he goes into heaven, and then he sends his Spirit upon us. Think about that. Okay? Because, in a sense, he can be far more effective 
with His Spirit coming and working in His people than He could be because when Jesus was on this earth, He was localized. He was His body was right here. And if He's right here, that means He can't be over there. Are you with me? And so His ascension is necessary in order for the pouring out of the Spirit on us, which gives to us that special presence of God everywhere. And we, we talk about that, okay? And so God's Spirit is now with us in a, in a way that He wasn't with us prior. And that is a result of the ascension into heaven. Five, He, he ascended into heaven. And this is closely connected with that fourth one. He ascended into heaven so that he could do greater things. And by that, we simply mean his spirit is able to be at work in his church. So his role, his function, if you will, is some, somewhat changed. So he goes into heaven. He ascends into heaven. He sends his spirit down into the earth to do his work. Okay? So he's carrying out that function of who he is and what he has for us. He's building his church is essentially that work that he is now in the process of doing through his spirit. The mystical body. So we we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the holy Catholic church. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic church. We're talking about Catholic church universal. We'll we'll get to that later. The universal church, okay? This invisible body of believers that exists and has existed. And um and while Jesus was here, he taught at one place at one time, but as he goes, he's able to then rain down gifts and his spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. Here's how we read it there, right? He says, uh, beginning in verse 7, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Um, uh, Let's see. Down in uh, in verse 12, we we get the reminders that everything we need, uh, He is giving to us. He's giving gifts to His church. He's building up preachers and teachers and all... He's doing this work even as he has ascended into heaven. Six. Two more, and then we'll, we'll be done quickly. Jesus ascended into heaven so that every believer everywhere might fully enjoy his presence. One of the great promises of Scripture is the promise that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, at the very end, right, where he says, and surely I am with you even to the very end of the age, okay? So he's given them this amazing commission to go out into the world and to make disciples and to turn the world upside down, and then he says to them, and I will be with you. It's the same promise that was given to to um, uh, to Joshua and all the way through the book of Joshua, as they moved in, they took possession of the promised land over and over and over. He reminds, God reminds Joshua, I will be with you. I will go before you. Okay? That, that is the promise of God's presence. And, and in order for us to have that presence, 
He can't be localized with us. He has to be ascended into heaven, and he sends his spirit. Here's the last one. In his ascension, Acts chapter 1 gives it to us. Okay, In his ascension, as he ascends into heaven, it's important that we say we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and his bodily ascension into heaven. Okay? So, in heaven, Jesus exists like you and I in the flesh. Okay? He has his body. He's, he's not a spirit. He's Jesus. So, he's at the right hand of the Father, at, you know, at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, however that looks, and he's in his body. And, and you and I... We have a soul, but we will also have, we have a soul that will last forever, but we will also have a body. Okay? And those will be connected. And I don't know. We've been down this road before. We did the Heaven series. And you all want to know, is it this body or is it the old, the, the younger one? And I don't know. Okay? Can't answer that question for you. I don't know exactly what that looks like. But you're going to have one. And I promise you, you will be good with it, okay? You will be okay with it, whatever it is, okay, Nicole? Uh, and it will be good. That is, that is the promise that, that we have. And, we have and, and so part of that is Jesus is, okay, he resurrected from the dead in his body, and he ascended into heaven with his body, and he will return bodily. Okay, so get all of that stuff out of your head about, you know, this doesn't matter. It's just what's in here. No, actually, your bodies matter. These matter. God made them. And the, the word, the, the Bible seems to indicate that it's really important, that so important that we'll have them. Okay, and so Jesus' ascension and, and when he returns, we'll all be in bodily form. So it's almost as if that ascension into heaven is, is, is sort of that first fruits, right? It's, he's going into heaven exactly the way one day you and I are going to go into heaven or be in the new heavens and the new earth with a body. And that's what the ascension partly shows us. Now, we'll just do these last kind of, all right, how do we wrap this all up? And here's the first thing. Uh, kind of these come to us from the Heidelberg Catechism. You can go, the Heidelberg Catechism does a really nice job of laying out the ascension. Here's the first one. The first kind of so what, Sam, is this. You and I had an advocate with the Father, and it's Jesus. Okay? When we sin, Jesus is currently and actively advocating for us. That's a big deal. Here's the second one. We have before us flesh in heaven. Jesus' ascension for us is a promise to us. It is a reminder to us that there is flesh and bone in heaven right now in the person of Jesus. It's a promise to us that we will have the same. 
And here's the third. The third sort of advantage, if you will, is that we, is, we have with us, because of Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit residing in us, building us into a body, making us into a people that we would not otherwise be without the work of the Spirit. So, let me ask you. Does the ascension matter? You better believe it matters. It's, it is a, an incredibly important doctrine because it, it helps piece together, gets us past the death, burial, resurrection, descent, uh, uh, descending into hell part, and it gets us to the, okay, now what? And now what is that Jesus is still active and working um, for you and for all the saints. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for uh, your, your word, which helps us understand who we are, what Christ has done for us. Father, what a beautiful picture this morning we have of Christ being at work for us in his ascension. And I pray we would hold fast to that doctrine and that teaching and it would be for our good and for your glory in jesus name amen let's stand we're going to sing hymn 305 we'll sing the first and the last of hymn 305